Open your Bible to the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 15. Navigate on your device if you prefer, but let's follow along together. There's value in reading uh, the text for yourself, obviously, and especially this book promises a blessing for those of us who read it. Our text is Revelation chapter 15. The topic, the tribulation martyrs sing the song of the Lamb in anticipation of the Lord coming to reign over all the nations. The title of our message, singing of your reign, what a glorious Savior, you're coming again. Amen? Amen. No, no, no. I, I know. I, you know, I'm a frustrated lounge singer is what I am. But anyway, my brother was a pretty, pretty good singer. I'll tell you that story sometime. Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray that it would reach between the soul and the spirit as only you can, and that in that place, Lord, as you commune with us, you would reveal more of your love, your abundance of grace, the greatness of your mercy in saving us. If there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you, they've never been born again, I pray that your spirit would woo them with that same love and grace, that they would come to know you as their savior this morning. Help us work through these words, Lord, in a way that is uh, honest and also applicable to our own lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Wrath of man, I am wrath. The titles of those feature films signal what is coming. Someone was wronged and seeks revenge. They'll take matters into their own hands, violent, vengeful hands that viciously murder those who have wronged them. We shouldn't, but we cheer them on. Who doesn't like a good vigilante? The wrath of God. Our popular use of the word wrath can leave us thinking God is a cosmic punisher seeking his revenge. Of course, he is not. He is compassionate, seeking repentance. It is an essential doctrine in both Testaments. We are told, for example, in the book of Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The phrase, the wrath of God, appears several times in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of the Revelation. In the first verse of chapter 16, we'll read, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Let's talk about the wrath of God. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God shows you his righteousness by delaying wrath. And number two, God shows you his righteousness by displaying wrath. Let's take a look at his delay in verses one through four. Here is a simplified but accurate working definition of what we mean by the wrath of God. The wrath of God is his divine response to human sin and disobedience. God is holy and the wrath of God is a divine response to human sin and disobedience. The very first time God responded to human sin and disobedience was the afternoon of Adam and Eve's eating of the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. Whatever else we discover about the wrath of God in the rest of the Bible must be governed by God's first display of wrath. God warned our original parents that if they disobeyed him, the consequences would be death. As you read past Genesis, you discover other consequences. All Adam and Eve's descendants are born with imputed sin, spiritually dead in trespasses and sin. 
what this means is that before you've ever done anything, you're already a sinner in the womb. You, you're already, uh, the, the, you know, imputed as if it's put into your account, so there's nothing you can do to save yourself. And then you find that you're born with a sin nature that has a propensity to sin, and you commit individual acts of sin. And you find that creation was ruined and requires restoration. What was God's divine response? Instead of killing them, the Lord sacrificed animals in their stead to temporarily cover their sin and shame. He promised to come to earth as a human himself to offer himself as the permanent once for all sacrifice for sin. His only ask is that we believe him. God delayed his wrath, at least to a certain extent. He did curse the ground and tell Adam his labor would be difficult. He did tell Eve that her childbirth would be painful and that she would find within herself a desire to overthrow her husband's authority. And God did banish them from the Garden of Eden. He did not, however, kill them. They would die, but not right away. The Bible then tells the story of God's delay from that Garden of Eden moment through the cross upon which Jesus died, through the Great Tribulation, and on into the Millennial Kingdom and into eternity until finally there is no more delay. God has finally fully dealt with sin and we live with him in bliss. Now, because God delayed his wrath, we are here today saved or lost. And by that, I mean, if you look back and think, when did I get saved? When did I trust Christ, believe God for my salvation? If it was a year ago, two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, whenever it was, you'd be in a very, very different situation if the Lord had come before that. We can't speculate. We don't know how things work out. But, but you know, I'm grateful that the Lord didn't come before 1979 because I would have gone into the great tribulation, a wicked, hell-doomed sinner, and the chances of getting to know the Lord that way would have been difficult. A lot of preachers say, if you can't serve him now, how are you going to serve him later when it gets worse? And so we can be thankful on the one hand, anxious, you know, that wanting the Lord to come back, I absolutely do. I'm ready for the Lord to come back right now. But I also understand his mercy in delaying and his grace in delaying so that others can hear the gospel and be saved. And so beginning in verse one, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Previously in the Revelation, Jesus opened seven seals on a scroll he was uniquely worthy to receive and execute. The seventh seal revealed seven angels with seven trumpets to blow. The seventh trumpet revealed seven angels with seven bowls to pour out. The seals and trumpets take us from the beginning of the seven-year Great Tribulation past its midway and into the last half of it. The bowls are poured out rapidly during the months just before Jesus returns. It says here, they are last, for in them the wrath of God is complete. That is to say, the centuries of delay will be over. This is it, the completion of God's plan. People who wonder what God is doing or why doesn't he do something, the book of the Revelation is what he's going to do. It's what he's doing, of course, on earth in the church now, but it's also what he's going to do in the future. It is his answer to human sin. Has it taken a long time? 
only by our standards of measuring time. 7,000 years are like a single day to the Lord. It's not an, you know, an absolute, it's, it's a comparison. And so from the Lord's point of view, it hasn't even been a week since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. To our point of view, it's been a long time and we wish the Lord would deal with it and he's going to. Verse two, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. There are similarities here between this chapter and the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. The sea of glass in heaven was represented in the tabernacle and temple on earth by a bronze wash basin called either the laver of brass, uh, bronze rather, or the sea of bronze. And, and so this is the way they represented it on the earth. In verse three, they sing the song of Moses, commemorating Israel's deliverance. The great tribulation is the day of Jacob's trouble when God will deliver Jews to safety and salvation. The seven angels in heaven with the bowls are dressed similar to an Old Testament high priest on the day of atonement. In the Exodus, God delivered the Jews from Pharaoh's fury. They crossed over the Red Sea on dry, solid ground. In the future great tribulation, God delivers Jews from Satan's fury. We read earlier in the Revelation that the devil will send a flood to drown Jews fleeing into the wilderness. God has the earth swallow the water. The Jews will get to safety on solid, dry ground. And so there are lots of parallels, lots of reaching back into the Old Testament. There's at least 800 references to the Old Testament in the book of the Revelation. It is in many ways the key to understanding its symbols and its visions. I like to remind you that Revelation was written in signs and symbols to make it clear, not to make it obscure. Just like signs out on the highway make it clear to people in a universal language, Revelation is written in a universal sign language so that we will not be confused. Talks about those who have victory over the beast, over the image and mark of, uh, and number of his name. These would be martyrs from the great tribulation. Their victory was to obey unto death. God gives you grace sufficient to obey unto death. If you study the martyrs in the Bible or you look at Fox's Book of Martyrs or something like that, it's evident that God gives a believer grace when they need it to be martyred and they have a, a, a holy boldness about them. Does it not follow that a believer can trust grace sufficient to obey in circumstances less than life and death? In every circumstance of your life, you can expect God's grace to be sufficient. Family and government were persecuting the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament for their believing Jesus. In one place, the author indicates their possessions were being seized. So it was a fairly serious time of persecution. Listen to this piece of godly advice from that writer. He says, consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And so the author advised them to be more like Jesus because after all, they hadn't shed any blood yet. Our advice to one another ought to be that, like Jesus, we can find and follow the leading of God the Holy Spirit, and we should toughen up because we're not bleeding yet. Now, that's hard advice, right? In a touchy-feely, cancel culture type of world that we live in, 
That's going to be tough. Come in to see lovable Pastor Gene. Pastor Gene, I'm having this problem or that problem. Well, if I'm talking to a woman, it'd be, well, you need to be a little bit more like Jesus and toughen up because it's not that bad. If I'm talking to you guys, it's like, get out of here, you weenie wimp. Man up and be a man. Be a man of God. <laughs> Call the ambulance. You know, that kind of a thing. But it's true. I've fantasized sometimes about people asking Paul, the apostle, for, you know, for some of the advice. That, you know, they come in and say, oh, I'm having trouble at work. My boss doesn't recognize how intelligent I am. I didn't get the raise I deserve. And rather than get on you, I think Paul would say, hey, See if you can take a brief vacation from work and travel with me for a little while. Go on a missions trip with me. You won't have to do anything. Just make sure your life insurance is paid up. While you were arguing with your boss about your raise, I was in one of my 150 shipwrecks or, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's funny here, but we go to our problems and a lot of them are more petty than we want to admit. Or at least they're not, they don't rise to the, uh, you know, to the level of, hey, I need real help with this. You've got help. You've got the Holy Spirit on board. Just be like Jesus. I can't do that. Yeah, yeah, of course you can. Because God's word is his enabling. God doesn't ask you to do anything he hasn't enabled you to do. A.W. Tozer said, we want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. Lord, thanks for dying for us. I don't want to die to myself, so take care of these things. It doesn't work that way. Have you ever had a nightmare vacation where everything went wrong? Like planes, trains, and automobiles, that kind of thing? Delays, difficulties, even disasters are to be expected. Eventually, you got home. We are on a nightmarish camping trip as we walk on earth as strangers and pilgrims. Of course you will have trials and troubles. It would be weird if you didn't. If, you know, if I keep seeing you and you say, man, my life smooth sailing, no problems, everything's great. I probably should take you aside and say, what are you doing wrong? You mean you're not having any trouble for being a Christian? No trials at all? Not physical, not emotional, not out in the world? No, no, I'm doing great. Maybe you need to get saved. I'm not sure how that's even possible because Jesus made you a promise. He said what? In the world, you will have trouble, tribulation, not smooth sailing. And so expect it. This is a mass counseling session right now, as a matter of fact. So my counseling load will be very limited this week, or everybody will go to Gene. Uh, but uh, we need to keep our thoughts and affections on our homes in the future New Jerusalem. And we need to counsel each other this way. We, we need to, in, in a compassionate way, say, hey, this world is not our home. These are things that we should expect. You're on your way home. Let's concentrate on the Lord. In chapter, uh, first of all, here the beast is mentioned, and that's the person we commonly call the Antichrist. He is never called Antichrist in the Revelation. Neither is he called by most of his other names. More than 30 of them mentioned throughout the Bible. So it shouldn't come as any shock. Some people try and undermine uh, futurist teaching by saying, you know, I've, I've shared this with you before. They say, hey, how many times is Antichrist mentioned in the Revelation? None. Oh, wow. So what? He's never called the Assyrian in the book of the Revelation either, but he is in other books of the Bible, so no big deal. In chapter 13, we saw him as a world leader coming back to life after an assassination. He comes directly from the abyss. 
And so he was assassinated, and instead of going to Hades, he went to the abyss, which is a prison for demons. It suggests that he will have a supernatural body when he comes out of it, because a regular human body cannot exist in the abyss. His image seems alive. If I had to guess, I'd say it would be advanced artificial intelligence. And then we also suggested that the mark was something on you or in you, a biometric identifier that will enable a global cashless, contactless economy. Mid-tribulation, the beast will desecrate the re-erected Jewish temple and he'll demand to be worshiped. Fail to swear allegiance to him and it will be simple for his government to lock you out of everything, track you down, incarcerate, or kill you. Imagine if you had... You know, you get rid of, you don't have any credit cards or debit cards or driver's licenses. You don't have any cards whatsoever, no birth certificates. You don't have anything on paper. Everything's digital and it's all accessed by your palm print. And you don't even have to touch anything. You can just scan it. Okay. So that's the system. So one day you wake up and your electric car won't start. So you walk to the market and you can't buy anything because they won't, because you've been taken off grid because you're a Christian or whatever other reason. And wherever you go, you're denied as if you own nothing and have nothing. And if you're out in public long enough, one of their drones will find you and blow you to bits. These kinds of things are happening now. There's countries using, and law enforcement agencies around the world using drones, weaponized drones that, uh, this was one of our updates a few weeks ago, that go by facial recognition. Better hope you don't have a twin. They seek you out and find you and kill you. And there's no operator to get PTSD is, you know, and wonder what he's doing. It's just all mechanical. In chapter 13, we also talked about the dreaded number of his name, 666. And I showed you how my name adds. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I bet I could make it, though. That's what they do. They, you know, if you take Gene in Hebrew and Joseph in Aramaic and Pensiero in Italian, the language of heaven, uh, then... <laughs> It might work out. We suggested, though, that it was symbolic of the failure of mankind to establish a permanent kingdom. You know, there's always some crazy person trying to take over the world. There's always some Hitler, right? No, some Napoleon. Well, in terms of the Bible, there are six nations that are important because they impacted Israel, God's people, in Bible prophecy. They are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. All of those succeeded each other in history. In the last days, we see that there will be a revived Roman Empire. And then when the Antichrist comes out of the abyss, he will take over the revived Roman Empire. So you could say that the Roman Empire repeats itself twice after its original inception, or it is 666. Get that? Very simple. Now, we could be wrong about that. This could be much more mysterious um, on the other hand, I don't think if a guy comes out of the abyss in a supernatural body and takes over the world, you're going to scratch your head and think, I wonder if his name adds up to 666. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, you know, uh, you're going to lose that bet with your friends, you know. And so, I mean, he's it. He's the guy. Uh, and so Jesus is coming to do what? To establish a kingdom. It will be the true seventh kingdom, the complete kingdom, the final kingdom of God uh, on earth and on into eternity. So that's what's going on. The martyrs stand on the sea of glass in the heavenly temple. The bronze sea on earth was a large basin of water, where, as I said, where the priests washed themselves and the sacrifices in order to signify their being clean. It was a ceremonial washing. 
you know, signifying the need to be clean, to be in God's presence. And so here these martyrs who uh, obeyed unto death are now in heaven uh, right where they want to be. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. Do you think of Moses as a singer, like topping the charts? After all, he complained to God that he had slowness of speech, he had some kind of speech impediment. He seems to be like a Jim Neighbors type guy. Remember Gomer Pyle? Well, golly, Sarge. Oh, beautiful. I mean, remember that guy? That guy was great. I saw him perform live one time. It's like, wow. My dad said, ah, he's faking. <laughs> okay, dad. He's, my dad said a lot of things too, but, <laughs> but I did some research this week because there's something called the interweb and uh, some of you may know this, probably all of you know this, stuttering and singing are a right brain, left brain thing. They come from two different sides of the brain. And that's why people who stutter often are good singers, or at least they're able to sing uh, without stuttering. And so I thought, oh, praise the Lord. Maybe Moses just went through life singing. Maybe, you know, if he were, in fact, God should have said, hey, just sing it all. I'll give you something to say and you can sing it, put it, but, you know, it didn't work out that way. Now, I don't wish to alleviate you fans of Dolly Parton. I know there's many of you out there. But I have to admit, and you have to admit, Whitney Houston's cover of I Will Always Love You is superior. These <laughs> You're in a very small minority of one. The martyrs will cover the song of Moses. Uh, some covers are actually really good, right? And... Um, uh, I, I was going to say something, but I'm not. I'm going to spare you that. It would only be funny to me. Scholars split as to which song of Moses, because the Old Testament records two of them. One is in Exodus chapter 15, and the other is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. The Exodus song fits the context best because there's this imagery of the Exodus of Jews. Verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. The Lamb, of course, the martyrs sing to is Jesus. Here's a few important thoughts about the lyric. First of all, he talks about his works. That would include creation and what a mighty, marvelous work that is. We know in the Bible it says uh, all things were made by him and for him. His most significant work, however, is you and I. In the book of Ephesians, we are called his masterpiece. Usually you only have one masterpiece, right? The master artist. When you think of da Vinci as a painter, you probably think of the Mona Lisa, whether it was his masterpiece or not. But um, the, a human being who is transformed to be like Christ. We are the master work of the universe. Everything else that exists only exists so that God can, can make a human being in his image that will love him freely forever and ever. So you probably have a, a spot on the earth that you think is just, and it is so beautiful here. It's so powerful. It, it's just the majesty of nature. Hidden Valley Park, for example. <laughs> That pond, no, anyway, but you know what I mean, you know, whether it's Hawaii or the Swiss Alps or whatever, it's like, imagine that, that, that's just 
cardboard background, the real work there is, to, is, is a person who God is molding and shaping into the image of Jesus Christ. It's you if you're a Christian. That's the work of God. As Lord Almighty, he cannot fail to accomplish all that he has promised and prophesied. His ways are just and true. The death penalty for sin is just and true, and so is his taking our punishment upon himself. Uh, an absolute holy God cannot exist with sin, cannot coexist with it uh, in the sense of, of uh, ignoring it. Obviously, God looks upon sin now. We're all sinners. The universe is, is in, in ruin. It's not that he can't take it. It's that he has to deal with it. He has to deal with it in his wrath. It's his divine response to it. Uh, and so he has to judge sinners. He has to be just. But at the same time, if he takes our place as a man and that wrath comes upon him, he can also then turn around and justify a believing sinner. And if you start to understand this, this is the crux of the book of Romans, that God is just and the justifier of men. This is, you think of all the other world religions and philosophies and think, oh yeah, none of them could ever hope to save us. Because the only plan of salvation, the only possible plan is for God to become a man. That's how God remains just and can be the justifier. Buddha can't do that. Muhammad can't do that. Confucius can't do that. John Paul Sartre can't do that. Abraham Maslow can't do that. Nobody can do that except Jesus Christ, and he's done it. He's just and the justifier, and so you can be saved. You're still a sinner, but he declares you righteous based on your belief in the work of Jesus Christ, and one day he will finally fully transform you into that image. It says here he is and is coming as king of the saints. We know that all the earth shall bow before him. One of the resources I consulted said, God tolerated those who would remain in evil for the sake of those who would be saved rather than ending the world immediately. God's wrath could have ended the world in the Garden of Eden. Instead, he revealed his plan to redeem sinners by dying in their place and calling upon them to repent of sin and be saved. In wrath, God remembers mercy. The grace of his wrath is calling sinners to repentance. Now, the remaining three or four verses, God shows you righteousness by displaying wrath. History reveals moments in which God did display his wrath. Adam and Eve's exile from Eden, the global flood, the confusion of language at the Tower of Babel, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God also has meted out wrath upon individuals. Nadab and Abihu were incinerated in the Old Testament after offering strange fire to the Lord. God struck dead Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament for lying to the Holy Spirit. I'm hiccuping right now in case you're wondering. Verse five, weirdest things happen. Weird. Verse five, after these things, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. We inaccurately call the entire compound on earth the temple. The temple consisted of two small chambers, the holy place and the holy of holies, uh, they were tents uh, made out of tent material and a veil separated you from them and from each other rather. John can see into the holy place and the holy of holies in heaven. When John died, or excuse me, when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out in a loud authoritative voice, it is finished. 
Not it is almost done or I have one more thing to say. He said, it is finished. In a loud voice, Jesus was in control of himself on the cross. The suffering was intense, unbelievably intense. But the Lord was in control and he, his father allowed him to have that strong voice, not a weak voice, not, what did he say? Jesus shouting from the cross. And what a shout that must have been. What a, if you know everything that's going on in the Bible and you realize the sin of the human race and everything that that moment has come to, it is finished. Oh my gosh. If, if that didn't knock over all the demons and, and evil beings, I don't know what would. Jesus finished that work. And then he gave up his spirit. He volunteered it to his father. Uh, it was all him. And so John sees into this place. The veil isn't there. And uh, you remember when Jesus cried out on the cross, one thing that happened is the veil in the earthly temple was torn, it says, from top to bottom, signifying that the way to the presence of God was now open to all who believed in him. There were no more ritual sacrifices, no more animal sacrifices. It was all a straight shot to the Lord through Jesus. And that's why I like to tell you, do not allow yourself to be drawn into any rite or ritual or religious rule that adds a layer of separation. And there, there's always gonna be many of them. It sells Christian books, quite honestly. I'm not saying that the authors are dishonest, but we have a tendency to drift towards legalism or works. We want to be able to point to something and say, I do this, and because I do this, I'm spiritual. Prayer is always something, how to have an effective prayer life, you know, that kind of thing. You wanna know how to have an effective prayer life? Pray. Don't read books about prayer, pray. Talk to God, develop a relationship with God through talking. However, you can find any number of techniques for praying. There's, when I first got saved, there was something they called soaking prayer. I still can't figure out what that was. But I, I, it was crazy. A few years ago, there were prayer labyrinths, right, where you entered into a maze, like a corn maze, but, you know, you go in, and you go into this maze, and every now and then there's a station where you do something or you say something, and then you keep moving through. These are all separations. Jesus said, guys, it's finished. There's no veil. Don't construct your own phony veil to feel more spiritual. Any book on prayer, tiny, small book, little book. Ian Bounds has written books on prayer. And what they do is say, you should be praying. That he could have just, you know, written one line and the rest of it could be a journal. You should be praying right now rather than reading my stupid book. Actually, those are good books, but do you understand what I mean? Do it. Don't talk about it. Do it. Out of the temple come seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. The angels didn't hang out in the Holy of Holies. It seems that they entered there for a specific, a specific purpose and then come out. They wear garments that would remind Jews of the ministry of the high priest on the annual day of atonement. The high priest entered and exited the Holy of Holies at least three times. And so the vision gets us thinking about the day of atonement. These plagues give those who inhabit the earth their last opportunity to believe the gospel. Atonement, big doctrine in scripture. Uh, uh, somebody simplified it one time by saying it, it's you, you becoming at one with God. 
That's the atonement. Jesus atoned for you so you could be at one with God. And that's all we need to know at this point. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. In heaven, the coming plagues are put into bowls. It is solemn for sure, anticipating the coming calamities on the earth. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from the power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. God's glory filled the earthly tabernacle and later the temple. Here it manifests itself as smoke. Smoke signals are an interesting ancient form of communication. Uh, what's most interesting to me is that they're still in use in some places today. Uh, the military uses different color smoke signals to signify things. But uh, you know, my favorite use of the smoke signal is at the Vatican when they're electing a new pope in the College of Cardinals. Uh, you, know, you either get black smoke or white smoke. And uh, millions of people are waiting for the smoke. How many ballots, you know, that kind of thing. But it's a, it's a modern day smoke signal. The smoke from heaven signals the action of chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Whatever else that may signify, it focuses our full attention on the pouring out of the plagues described in detail in chapter 16. Now, earlier I said that his first response to human sin should obviously govern our understanding of the wrath of God. It may sound as if I'm minimizing God's wrath because his first response was compassion. It is a common criticism leveled at evangelicals that we minimize the wrath of God. One reform pastor wrote, God's wrath has been eliminated from most 20th century pulpits. And so his analysis is that um, evangelical churches like ourselves are not talking about the wrath of God. We only want to talk about the love of God. We do not minimize God's wrath. It's sort of difficult to minimize it or to maximize it for that matter if we just go verse by verse through the Bible. Doing so, we get all the aspects of the wrath of God from its compassion to its condemnation and everything in between. We're in the book of the Revelation. We're saying it's the grace of wrath. He's delaying, delaying, and delaying. And then all of a sudden, bam, here it comes. Trumpets, bowls, the second coming, people thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, it's, it, it's a more complete way of looking at things. We read in John 3, 18 and 36, he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Our holy, perfect God will pour out his wrath upon those who have sinned against him. Those who never believed Jesus for salvation face judgment, followed by eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not in Christ, you've never been born again, you haven't come before the Lord and repented of your sin and begun to walk with him. You can't point to that time in your life if you're an adult uh, that you came to know Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you like I do sometimes, uh, tell me about your relationship with Christ. And you say, well, I grew up in this uh, such and such church. And then I say, well, when, when did you actually receive Christ? Well, I had confirmation or I went before the board, you know, when I was this old. I'm starting to get the feeling that you think relationship with Jesus is a relationship with a church rather than a relationship with the living God. 
as opposed to people I say, hey, when did you get saved? Oh, man, thanks for asking. Nobody's asked me for a while. I was walking in sin. I was going this way, and then all of a sudden, the Lord did this, this, and this. It was so cool, and, I, and they give their testimony. Do you have a testimony? Maybe you've been saved since you were a child. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, and you know that you know that your heart is filled. But if you're an adult, and, and you, you, know, you, you have to trust Jesus Christ, not the church. On the cross, Jesus volunteered to drink the full cup of God's wrath. As we learn from his praying in Gethsemane, there was no other way for wrath to be removed except through his death on the cross. If you are in Christ, Jesus has taken the wrath of God you deserved upon himself. He is just and can justify you. Furthermore, from our previous studies, we know that he has promised you that you will not endure any portion of his wrath in the great tribulation. He said, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. A lot of Christians nowadays, they're so excited about trying to get you to go through the tribulation. They have all these mid-tribulation rapture theories, pre-wrath rapture theories, so that you can experience some of that. Jesus said, I'm gonna keep you from that whole hour of trial, which is coming on the whole earth. You, in another place says, you are not appointed to that wrath. He's taken it. Trouble, trials, sure, but not the wrath of God being poured out on Christ-rejecting sinners. And so I, I, I think we have a balanced approach. If you're saved, how glorious, how wonderful. Creation is your backdrop. You are God's masterwork. He is the master craftsman. Look what he did in the world even in our fallen world, what can he do with you? If you're not saved, you need to get saved. We're gonna have guys down here this morning who would love to talk to you about a relationship with Jesus Christ. You and I should be singing in his reign, amen?